0: I'm Fiona Still, the Victorian State Manager at NDS, and we're here today to discuss some practical and useful strategies that can be employed to enable successful planning outcomes for participants with psychosocial disability support needs. I would like to start today by acknowledging that the term psychosocial disability was not one that was commonly used in Australia until its inclusion in the list of disabilities to be supported by the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The NDIS defines psychosocial disability as a disability that may arise from a mental health issue, not everyone who has a mental health condition will have a psychosocial disability, but for people who do, it can be severe, long-standing, and impact on their recovery, meaning that they experience substantial functional impairment in their ability to undertake daily living activities. I think we are all aware that the introduction of the NDIS involved groundbreaking and transformational change as we reorient disability supports and funding to better respond to the needs and goals of NDIS participants. This has been a challenging and changing journey at times for many people, as we have adjusted to new systems, processes and priorities. Whilst many participants are now reporting good outcomes with the NDIS and disability services are adapting to the new environment, there is still ongoing concern about how some groups of people are faring under the NDIS. People living with psychosocial disability are one cohort who have faced challenges in accessing and receiving appropriate supports under the NDIS. This has been recognised by the Government and the NDIA, and we are seeing the development of new psychosocial disability pathway and other changes to the system. Also, in 2020, we look forward to seeing the recommendations of both the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system and the National Productivity Commission's inquiry into mental health. We look forward to seeing how these improvements lead to better integration of the NDIS and other mental health supports in Victoria. Today, however, we will be discussing some strategies currently being used to assist people with psychosocial disability to successfully navigate this new NDIS environment. With that in mind for today's discussion, I am joined by our studio guest, Susan Brunton. She's the NDIS Service Lead for the Mental Health Program at Monash Health. She has worked in this role for the last 18 months and prior to that was an NDIS appeals advocate. As an appeals advocate, Susan supported individuals who had been denied access to the NDIS to appeal the decision or who had an issue with their plan to seek a review. On occasions, the appeals ended up in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which allowed Susan to use her prior experience as a personal injury and insurance lawyer to support participants. Susan has specialist litigation experience defending catastrophic claims involving spinal injury, acquired brain injury, and loss of limb. So she brings a somewhat unique perspective to her working in the NDIS environment. Welcome Susan. Hello Fiona, happy to be here. Thank you Susan for joining us today in the studio to share your wealth of experience and grounded understanding in applying the NDIS Act for people with psychosocial disability support needs in the NDIS. Susan, acknowledging that the scheme is still developing and maturing, what are some of the key challenges that you see when supporting NDIS participants
1: that present to your health service? So firstly, Fiona, the major thing is the understanding of the NDIA of psychosocial disability. So what we find with our people who are coming into our mental health program at Monash Health is that a lot are itinerant. They have chaotic lives. Some are not sure what the NDIS is. Some of our people are not sure whether they have access to the scheme, whether they have a plan, whether it's been implemented. They really don't know as a result of the nature of psychosocial disability. So conveying some of those challenges to the NDIA can be tricky. For example, when we're supporting a person to gain access to the scheme and they're homeless, the NDIA will often insist upon an address. This is difficult when they are homeless so we often give the hospital address but even you know we're often quizzed at length about now what is their address when they are in fact homeless the second key challenge i guess for us as a major health service is the organisational challenges so we have a lot of demands on our acute psychiatric beds which means that we have a lot of unwell people in the community now to support those people to reduce the length of stay in hospital which aligns with a you know an optimal outcome for that person the NDIS is proving to be a great tool in supporting that sustainable discharge from hospital so in terms of patient flow we're using the NDIS and we need to use it as effectively as possible for our own organisational purposes But let me just say too, that aligns always with the patient. So what we're trying to do is achieve an optimal outcome for the patient that I guess frees up more beds, but at the same time supports access to the NDIS. What are some of the steps that you take when a person with a
0: psychosocial
1: disability is admitted to your health service? Well, our first thing is to focus, I guess, on what is required for that particular person. And we take a very person-centred approach. So each person will have different concerns. They will require something different from the NDIS. But what is required? Is it access? Do they know what the NDIS is? Do they need support accessing it? Sometimes our patients have a plan, but they don't know that. Sometimes they have access, but they need a planning meeting. So for us, it's about supporting engagement with the NDIA to get them an urgent planning meeting. Sometimes they have a plan, but it hasn't been implemented. And plan implementation has been one of the most difficult things for our patients to achieve on their own. So we support that. Sometimes we will support the engagement of or help them to look for a support coordinator to assist them. And sometimes they have a plan that is just patently inadequate. So it's about supporting a review of that plan to ensure that they have the supports through the plan that they need and that those supports are implemented and then they're discharged from our acute inpatient service. Or if they're going into the community, it's about having those supports in the community as well. So Susan, if a person
0: with a psychosocial disability is initially denied access to the scheme, are there steps
1: providers can take to assist them to get access to the NDIS? So yes, Fiona. And one of the first things I would say Don't appeal. You can apply as many times as you need to, to get access to the NDIS. There isn't a limit on how many applications you can make. And, you know, you can do that in a short period of time. If you do an appeal, then you can be waiting six to nine months for that appeal to be heard. So number one rule is just keep reapplying. But it's also the appeals It is a legal
0: process, which for the participants that you're supporting is probably not going to be the best outcome
1: anyway. It's very stressful for them. Yeah. So the first thing I often say to clinicians and to patients is let's have a look at the evidence. Now, from my role as an advocate and looking at what the AAT do when people are denied access, they solely base their decisions on Section 24 of the NDIS Act, which is where the eligibility criteria is outlined. And what we do is stay very close to that eligibility criteria. So when I see that someone has been denied access, we have a look at the evidence. What was the supporting evidence? Sometimes we find that too much evidence has been given and factors that aren't relevant to the eligibility criteria are mentioned. So for example, if someone has a psychosocial disability, but they also have substance abuse, or they also have some trauma, that doesn't necessarily meet the NDIA's understanding of disability, then they can be denied access to the scheme. So our golden rule is to declare what is relevant, which means to focus sharply on the disability evidentiary criteria in the Act and stay very close to that. Now, when our clinicians do that, we tend to have a very high rate of success with getting people to access the scheme. So when looking at the disability criteria for eligibility and when looking at the six domains that, you know, really speak to substantially reduced functional capacity, mobility is a really tricky domain for people with a psychosocial disability. I think we see mobility as someone, you know, requiring a wheelchair. For people in this space, it can be due to anxiety and the symptoms of a mental illness. They're unable to leave their bedroom. They're not mobile. Some participants can't leave the front door because of their anxiety. We also really need to think about what the symptoms look like. So sometimes people can't use public transport because their auditory hallucinations are so marked that on a tram for example, they have a delusional structure that means people are calling them names and they cannot cope and you know they become aggressive and whatever. So they're really unable to use public transport, which is an example of having a substantially reduced functional capacity to mobilise. So I think in the psychosocial space, it's really digging down into what does the person's impairments look like and really think laterally about how that's but
0: very specific about that everyday functioning. What are the things that that person needs to do in everyday activities that the psychosocial disability
1: impacts I- upon? Impacts? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing I would say is when we're looking at evidence, plain English, Is really key. So working in a health service, our clinicians write beautiful medical reports. However, for access purposes, the NDIA have access assessors that have a range of experiences, and sometimes they're not clinical in the space of psychosocial disability. So for example, the expression requires guidance and prompting when talking about the domain of self-care isn't always helpful. So I always say to the clinicians, what does that mean? Let's have some examples. Let's talk about in your report to go to the NDIA, create a narrative, create a picture for the NDIA so that they understand exactly how impaired this particular person is. So, looking at the domain of self care, we often have patients, and sometimes they're in our acute inpatient unit, sometimes in the community, they don't shower. You know, they shower once every three weeks. They don't wash their clothes regularly. Um, if they're homeless, they have very limited self-care, if at all. And it's about explaining that in a letter in plain English so that really a variety of readers of the letter who are addressing the access request from the NDIA's perspective can have a very clear picture in and their They can minds. also
0: see how the supports that NDIS have got to offer... Yeah,
1: absolutely. 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 So plain English is a really big one, but also sticking very closely to the NDIS Act and its eligibility criteria. So very sharply addressing what's required in the Act. So one of the things that we've talked about previously,
0: Susan, you and I, is about that importance of language. So, have you got any things that you can share about what's really important in people are writing reports? So, whether that's to assist someone to get access or with progress um, notes that they might be writing or for a review, Mm. that NDIS language that Mm. people use. I know we're referring to NDIS participants, that's a new name. They're not clients, they're not patients, they're NDIS participants. But there are other new phrases that are common to people who work in the NDIS, but might not be in common use by people. who work in other mental health
1: services? Yeah, so I guess it's language and it's also concept. So, for example, in the health service space, if we need to get the NDIA's attention pretty quickly for a patient, so they've either come in and they need urgent access because they're homeless, for example, their carer arrangements have broken down. So we see that a lot, homelessness, carer arrangements have broken down. They've hurt someone or they're a danger of hurting themselves. What I try and impress upon our clinicians is those are the things, those are the concepts that will get the attention of the NDIS. So we need to talk about homelessness, we need to talk about breakdown of informal care arrangements. That's a concept that will get their attention. In terms of language, I think it's about, you know, talking about disability supports. What are the supports that will build the capacity of someone given their impairment? So we're really talking about impairments, reduced functional capacity, and what can be done to build. That capacity backup. And it, it isn't, we're not dealing in definites here. So we don't have to say that something definitely will assist, but will support someone. So support is the most used word in the NDIS space. I used to think it was about language, and it still is to the extent that I think plain English is absolutely key. But secondly, it's about the concepts. So it's about, you know, getting the attention of the NDIS and working with them using their, you know, framework. Yes. I guess to really, you know, support a positive outcome for a person and it's what they need.
0: And I think the other thing is the importance is that what we're talking about, NDIS supports are for everyday activities. It's not a clinical support, which are the supports that your hospital is providing,
1: but it's looking at the other things that that person needs in their life. So one of the great challenges for a health service that provides clinical supports is the concept that at the same time, in collaboration, we need to look at psychosocial supports as well. So we've, you know, we're pretty good. We sort of support that yeah. clinical health. The two work together. And in terms of one of the difficulties we had some time ago with the NDIA was, I guess, drawing the line between this is the health service responsibility. The clinical care of someone is appropriate for the health service. However these are the disability supports. So it's like an artificial line. But very early on with the NDIA in our area, we were very good going into a planning meeting at saying, these are the ongoing clinical supports that we will provide. And that was great in, I guess, having some clarity with the NDIA that this is what this person needs from you, and we will continue doing what we do clinically. And And they don't overlap, but they work work together. together. Absolutely. And that's when we've seen the lovely outcomes for our people when we're collaborating with the NDIA. And, you know, I guess... It's been lovely to see in our area that, you know, from a very rocky early start, we were able to establish we know what we're doing in the clinical space and this is what you need to do and we both work together and, you know, we were off. We are off to the races after that because everyone had clarity about what their role was. This is the health service. This is the NDIS and away we went.
0: Sounds good. <laughs> So, Susan, how can providers support someone who's experienced a period of crisis
1: and they're in need of additional supports to get a timely review? We spoke just previously about urgent access. The priority factors for the NDIA, and we're seeing this quite regularly, are homelessness, breakdown of informal supports, you know, carers just relinquishing, or if someone has really hurt someone else or they've hurt themselves. We use those priority factors a lot. So we often will write to the NDIA with supporting evidence, if I can use access to begin with. We had a patient in recently, a couple of weeks ago, who had a lengthy time in prison, incarceration, and had a number of pit stops before getting to one of our acute inpatient units. And we really felt that psychosocial supports were going to be invaluable to this patient. I got the team together. Our consultant psychiatrist and the registrar did wonderful supporting evidence. So on the Monday, I sent that supporting evidence off to the NDIA for an access decision, noting in my covering email the priority factors that this patient was homeless that they had no informal supports. And when I say lack of informal supports, there's a lot of our patients that just don't have a relationship with their family. They've been unwell for a long time. So it's something that we see a lot of. There had been a past history of aggression and violence, so we needed to be careful. And this fellow really couldn't leave hospital without psychosocial supports in place. So on the Monday, I very nicely asked the NDIA if they would make a quick decision. On the Thursday of that week, I got a phone call saying, let's arrange a planning meeting. It was with a local area coordinator and I went through the patient's circumstances and the local area coordinator said, look, I'd be really uncomfortable about doing the planning meeting. I think that needs an NDIA planner. Because of the complexity of the needs? Because of the complexity of the needs. And they were quite right. I spoke to our local office and the following Monday, we had a planning meeting on the unit. So we had an NDIA senior planner with mental health subject matter expertise come into the acute inpatient unit to conduct the planning meeting. Several of our clinicians attended also, and then the plan actually issued the next day. So it's about being very clear about what is going to help the patient and then, again, using the concepts that we know the NDIA respond to very quickly to work together with us as a system to ensure that, I guess, our shared consumers are then able to, with full support, actually go out into the community and live their ordinary life. How important is it to get support coordination right for people with psychosocial disability support needs? It is everything. What I will say is that we notice when support coordination doesn't go well. I think we are seeing support coordinators that understand the complexity of participants with psychosocial disability really filling the market. So 12, 18 months ago, we struggled with support coordinators who did not understand the complexity of what what they were tasked to do, and we worked very closely with them to upskill and support but acknowledging that our people are really, you know, they are tricky to deal with and particularly when they have transient lifestyles and there's not a lot of family support. So it's really the support coordinator supporting the person. But we have, what I love is that we have a much larger pool of really wonderful support coordinators who understand psychosocial disability and work very well for our people. Because of the complexity, what we need are support coordinators that have that experience. So I think like anything that works well in life, we really almost don't notice excellent support coordination because it's so seamless and they make implementing someone's plan and supporting a participant look so easy. What we notice is when there is less experienced support coordinators in the space, their implementation hasn't been great and they end up in hospital. And then that's when we have to work very quickly to get reviews of plans. The other thing I would say is that a really great support coordinator can make any amount of plan funding work. So I will always say it's not the size of the plan, it's what you do with it that counts. So it's an interesting relationship and I think it's a watch this space as we see how support coordination develops as I guess a role and as we have more experienced players in and that as space. as you noted it's been even
0: over the last 12, 18 months mm. you've seen development in that role and we're soon to get some further guidance from the NDIS on what that role is. So that yeah. that help
1: again. Could I also just add though that we're seeing a number of our consumers accepted into the complex support needs pathway And that is a really interesting space because the complex support needs planners really watch implementation. So we have the Quality and Safeguarding Commission watching if a provider is not doing the right thing with a participant. But we don't seem to have anyone watching over plan implementation. So we certainly know there's an underspend and that a lot of plans in the psychosocial space aren't actually implemented. The complex support needs team is watching that space so beautifully. So we're not having big lags. I guess in the psychosocial space, one of the difficulties with our very complex and unwell consumers, we have struggled to obtain service provision because the providers feel the behavioural history, the forensic history means that their workers are at risk. So that's been a huge challenge for us. The Complex Support Needs team has been brilliant in coming into that space and overseeing plan implementation, the likes of which we hadn't seen previously. So we love whenever the Complex Support Needs team come knocking, their capacity for participants is very much limited by their staffing. But when they do become engaged, it is just glorious to watch them in action. And really, it's kind of, I think, how the NDIS was intended to run. They really support a person, you wrap around, watch implementation. And for us as a health service, it does actually really take a bit of pressure off us in terms of they are watching and they are supporting. And it's not, I guess, so much within our scope to be ensuring that someone is adequately supported so they don't come back to hospital, the complex support needs team are far more engaged in doing that. And it reflects that uh, understanding that the people you support do have complex needs, that it they're changing. Does. It does. It absolutely does. But again, so the complex support team you know, understands where the pitfalls are for these particular you know, participants and really work hard to overcome that. To get good outcomes. Yeah. Oh, so one other thing, what and I love this story is that the Complex Support Needs team will also have planning meetings at McDonald's. If that means the participant is going to be there and they're going to be able to have a conversation. And I love that. You know, we sometimes have consumers that won't engage with, you know, community care teams, but they are frequent presenters to our emergency department. Am I currently in conversation with the complex support needs team to see if they'll do a planning meeting in the emergency department? Yes. And I love that they're open to that. So the flexibility and the understanding that that's how they can best have a conversation is over a Macca's and some fries. brilliant. And, you know, the flexibility and understanding that leads to that outcome I think is just gold. That's That's really what we want to see. That is being person-centred. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> So Susan,
0: from what you've talked about today, it seems that you've seen lots of changes over the last 18 months. One in the understanding that Monash Health has about the relationship with the NDIA and how you can assist in how the NDIS might meet the needs of people that come through your health service. Have you got any reflections or things you might want to tell us about some of the successes you've seen in that time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing lovely successes now and we didn't for a long time. You know, The lag in terms of understanding how we effectively support people to get access, that took a while. It's all taken a while. When we had planning meetings, it took a while to understand how do we get really positive outcomes for our people. And then there was the plan implementation and now we're seeing it all come together. We have some patients where we're seeing their second or third plan review and what we're seeing is lovely And when our clinicians ask, why are we doing this? This is time consuming. You know, it's a difficult landscape to navigate. Why are we doing it? Why? Because we're seeing patients flourish. We have lovely instances of patients in more in our long-term facilities where they're, you know, it's not an acute, it's an ongoing. They've been very unwell for a very long time. And we have patients that wait by the door on the days that they know their support workers are coming. So for example, there's one patient that knows their support worker will come at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. And if you enter the unit at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, the patient will be there dressed, ready to go, ready to access the community. And you know we haven't seen that from the patient before. We're seeing patients come to life. We're seeing through their NDIS funded supports and the access to the community, we're finding out what they love. We're finding out where their interests lie. And so to have that knowledge and to see these patients flourishing, coming back to life in conjunction with, you know, the clinical regime they're on. So holistically we're seeing the wonderful improvements to patients' lives through these psychosocial supports. And that's what keeps us going. We see young children whose families are ready to relinquish them and through just a bit of tweaking of plans and seeking urgent reviews and working with the NDIA to support families, we're seeing families that stabilise the ship steadies and we're seeing six months later the family unit together. So we're not short of lovely examples. But you're also seeing that that young person, I imagine is clinically more well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I guess moving forward, my goal will be to see a lot more of the conversion of greater psychosocial supports reducing you know, the clinical needs of our patients. And we don't have data on this as yet, but, you know, I think as we continue along this path, we will, of that conversion of psychosocial supports, then keeping people from having the the number of admissions they've had in recent times. We have had conversion of a reduction of ED presentations once we've you know, supported patients and their families to really lovely and effective plans that really match what that person requires. We're seeing them drop off the frequent ED presenters list, for example. And that is so gratifying. And we know that that means they're out living their ordinary life or living the life that they want to live. And really, you know, what more can we ask? It's
0: a great story. <laughs>
1: Susan, thanks for
0: sharing that information with us. It's both your personal reflections, but really practical suggestions and insights today. We hope that this has given providers some useful strategies to use. Also that hope that things will work out and that what we're all in this game for is to look at those really great outcomes for the people that we support, that organisations can share that with their participants, with carers and families, and look at how that can be implemented into their services so that we can start to see better access and planning outcomes for people when they're needed. And that is also reflecting a deeper understanding of people's needs living with a psychosocial disability. And I think that's one of the things that's really key at the moment. We're seeing lots of change, seeing that people understand the NDIA better, but also that there's changes in place to make the NDIA systems easier to navigate for people with psychosocial disability supports.
1: Absolutely. More of it, I say.
0: (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Uh, You can head to the nds.org.au forward slash STP to access the full podcast series and the sector development project information and events. Is your organisation a member of NDS? National Disability Services is your peak body for service providers across Australia. Our members entrust us to represent them and to unify our collective strength to fight for a more inclusive future for people with disability. Join today via nds.org.au and uncover a range of supports that will assist your organisation navigate the challenges and opportunities of the sector.
1: The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package.